continuing uh, this series of wisdom from the book of Proverbs. And uh, this morning we're going to take a close look at how to make wise decisions. How to make wise decisions. Now, where would you go if you need a bath towel? A new bath towel. Where would you go? Anybody shoot it, shoot it out. Where would you go? A little, little interaction. Okay. <laughs> Uh, how about Bed Bath & Beyond? I don't know if that would be your first choice, but uh, I'm sure if you wanted a bath towel, Bed Bath & Beyond would provide that's a place to go. It's a good source. Right? There are others that you might choose, but certainly they would have that. Where would you go for a hamburger fry and a Coke? Uh, I don't know. McDonald's might service you quite well. So where do you go for wisdom? And to learn how to make wise decisions. Where's the place for that? The source for that? Well, uh, Proverbs is that location. It's the place to go. In fact, that's the purpose for this book. It is to impart wisdom. Now, we're going to do a little bit of review. Pastor Kevin has spoken to these, these concepts. We're going to package them together and then move on to some new ground. In Proverbs 1, and I, all the references to Proverbs are on the screen, but I'll be using some other references that I'll read directly from the Bible. In Proverbs 1, 1 through 4, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and, equ and equity. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. That's the whole purpose for this book is to impart wisdom so that when you're finished with this book and you continue on in God's word, you'll be better equipped to make wise decisions. Now, is it possible to navigate through this entire book and not receive wisdom? I don't know if it's possible, but stranger things have happened. I remember years ago as a pastor at Calvary Baptist Church in Toppenish, we took a busload of senior citizens to Leavenworth to enjoy the, 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 the place there. And as they were about to get off the bus, I said, now look, we've got plenty of time allotted for you to go to all the stores and shops you want to go, but everyone has to be back here by 1 o'clock. 1 o'clock, get on the bus because I have reservations for all of us at a restaurant. We need to be back at 1, okay? Everybody understand that? They said, fine. They got off the bus. One o'clock came. Everyone came back, but two little old ladies, they left together. Five, ten, fifteen minutes went by. They weren't there. So I asked one woman, I said, would you do me a favor? Would you get off the bus and quickly go through some of the shops? And if you find them, would you please escort them back to the bus? She says, fine. She was gone for about five minutes, and she brought them back. They had this sheepish look on their face. And they got on the bus, and I, and I knew their temperament, and I knew that I could uh, toy with this a little bit. And I said, uh, what time were you supposed to be back? And he said, 1 o'clock. And I said, it's not 1 o'clock. It's like 1.15. Why are you so late? And they said, well, we didn't have a watch. We didn't know what time it was. I said, okay, have a seat. And the woman who found them said, uh, you know where they were? I said, No. You're in a clock shop. <laughs> You're surrounded with clocks. You don't know what time it is. It's possible you could be 
in Proverbs, verse after verse, chapter after verse, uh, chapter, surrounded by wisdom, literally lady wisdom, as Pastor Kevin says, screaming at you, going all over, and maybe you don't get it. You still don't get it. So let's be absolutely sure we know what wisdom really is. Can't be staring you right in the face. You're not wisdom. I'm looking for something else. Let's, let's put a face on this. <clears throat> so here's a couple of illustrations to know what wisdom is. Um, my wife and I bought a house that was built in the 50s. And we've spent the last 10 years trying to bring our kitchen into the 21st century. Yeah, 10 years. For some of you, give you a few months, you got it done, you move on with your life. Here we are dragging this out year after year after year. What's the reason for the delay? Well, I've got several. One, I'm lazy. Two is, I've got other things to do besides remodel a kitchen. Three, uh, finances. Our policy is to pay as we go. And the fourth one is this. I don't have the skill. I don't have the ability. I'm not a carpenter. Joanna Gaines has never called me to fix up one of her houses. I don't come from a line of carpenters. You know the old saying, measure twice, cut once. <laughs> I measure three or four times, cut five or six, and I still don't get it right. I'm not an electrician. You have to rewire, new wire, hardwire. What's that about? I'm not Thomas Edison. And plumbing. Let's see. The sink is connected to the garbage disposal. The garbage disposal and the sink are connected to the dishwasher. The dishwasher is now connected to my stove, right? Isn't that how this goes? So everything is by trial and error. I, I break it down to little tiny baby steps. You do this, get it done. Uh, look at Google to see how somebody did it and try it again. And then you move on to the next step, the next little piece. I break it down, tiny little pieces, and it's taken me years and years and years to do this. Finally, I reached a point where I've got to bring in the heavy hitters. Uh, a real carpenter, a real electrician, and a real plumber, and... They've got to work together, side by side, to get this part of this work done. I've got a granite countertop that has to go on with the under-counter under, uh, sink and all the new plumbing. A new dishwasher has to be hardwired at the same time. And then we've got a gas top countertop stove that has electronic ignition, don't have a gas line. They all have to be there. It all has to come together at one time. So we bit the bullet, and I called uh, Baxter Construction. I know uh, Bryce very well. And uh, he coordinated the whole thing. He orchestrated everything. He, he brought in all these guys, the, the, con the uh, carpenter, the electrician, and the plumber, all three together working side by side to complete this task for me. And at one time, literally, all three were on their knees side by side with their heads inside the cupboards. There was not one, two, but three cracks in a row. Go figure that! And lo and behold, at the end of the day, they were done. It was complete. It was wonderful to see people who were skilled at a given craft to be able to do the work 
that they were called to do. You know, that's what wisdom is all about. It's about the skill of a craftsman. Now, in the Old Testament, Moses spent an, ext- spent an extended stay at Motel uh, Mount Sinai. And while he was there, God uh, told him that there were a lot of things that the people of Israel were going to have to make and build. For example, in Exodus 28, verses 2 and 3, I'm just reading this to you from Scripture now. In this ongoing uh, instruction that God was giving to Moses, he said, And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful, whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. Do you know the word skill in those verses? is the exact same Hebrew word in Proverbs 1 for wisdom. Wisdom is skill. Well, that's not all you're supposed to make. Not only are you going to make garments, there's a lot of other things in chapter 31, verses 1 through, through four, uh, 5. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. To devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. The Hebrew word for craftsmanship is again that same word in Proverbs 1 for wisdom. So let's see if we can define wisdom. Wisdom, all of Proverbs, is the skillful use of knowledge, instruction, and understanding in the art of godly living. The goal, the task, the focal point of proverbial wisdom is that you have something that you are supposed to build. You need skill in building that. You need the proper knowledge and instruction and understanding. But all of that is meant for you to go and do something with it. You're going to be a craftsman. You are building a godly life. That's what it's all about. It's building a godly life. And if you keep that in the forefront, why do I have wisdom? Why should I make godly decisions? It's because there's an end point to this. Everything is moving toward a product. It is a man, a woman of God. That's what God gives us wisdom to do. So if that's the case, if the purpose of wisdom is to, uh, Proverbs is to impart wisdom, And wisdom is to prepare us, to equip us, to enable us to live a godly life. Then we can decide to take the first step in decision making. Here's the first step. Is that the wise are committed to godly living. The wise are committed to godly living. There it is, step number one. We commit ourselves to godly living. That's our focus. All this knowledge, all this understanding, all this insight, all this instruction are meant for us to live a godly life, and you need to be committed to that. That. 
And in fact, in Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, there is a, a, something of a commitment statement. And again, Pastor Kevin is really focused on this, and we're just doing a little review here and emphasis and packaging it together. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Let me emphasize the action verbs here. Receive my words. Receive. Making your ear attentive. Incline your heart. Call out. Raise your voice. Seek it. Search for it. These are the action verbs that describe a life that's committed to wisdom. We're not window shopping here. This is a person who's just not just browsing the internet. This is a person who is searching diligently with devotion and dedication for the one valuable thing in their lives that they need to be a man or woman of God. And that's wisdom. You need to be committed to this, dedicated to this. Because that's what this is all about. Let's go back to my three craftsmen. The carpenter, the electrician, and the plumber who came to my house that day. Let's suppose they showed up and they had eight hours to work. And the carpenter immediately went out of my front yard and started making a rose garden. And the electrician was in the backyard and he decided to make a swing set. And the plumber decided to resurface the hardwood floor in my dining room, hallway, and bedrooms. And at the end of eight hours, they said, we're done. Come take a look at our workmanship. Look what we did. Look at that garden. Isn't that beautiful? You can now smell the roses. Take a look at that swing set. Isn't that sturdy? I mean, your grandkids are going to love that. And the hardwood floors, when they dry, you're going to think that you were walking on glass. And you know what my response would be? Oh, it's really nice to have those things. But what was the purpose for which you were called to my house? You weren't here to plant a rose garden or to build a swing set or to resurface my hardwood floors. As good as those things are. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, unless there's an organic necessary connection between these things and my kitchen, I would say that you misspent the time that you had in my house. It shows you were not committed to the thing you were called to do. Now we have 24 hours in a day. God gives us, he's fair, he gives us all 24 hours. He doesn't give Gary 28. (laughs) He gives us all 24. And at the end of the day, wouldn't it be interesting if God could say, now let's let's do a little assessment, a little evaluation. What did you do with your day? Well, you know, I did this, that, and the other thing. And God might ask, yeah, those are important. They're good things. But what were you called to do? What were you supposed to be making? What were you supposed to be building? What were you supposed to be committed to? What were you given all this instruction for? Oh, oh, I forgot it. Ooh, a godly life. Mm, 
you think. Now, a lot of the things that we do during the day can actually be integrated into that purpose. But often we do things without purpose or intentionality. They just happen. They're things that have to be done. But when we tie it all together into our purpose and our calling, we see that God does use work. He does use marriage. He does use finances. He does use these things of life to work together to produce that godly life that he wants in us. But if you don't see that connectedness, you're going to miss the point. So we have to be committed to this matter of godly living. And it requires diligence, desire, and devotion. This is wisdom in 3D. Got that? That's the first step. Do you want to be committed to this, or is this something I don't think I I don't think I want? That's up to you. But it's there. The second step is that the wise read and follow instructions for godly living. How many of you have ever been to Ikea? Ever, raise your hand. Have you ever been there? One person. <laughs> Jake, you're the only guy who's ever been to Ikea. Okay, there's others. I have a love-hate relationship with Ikea. I love to go there, and I like to see what kitchens are like and what they offer, the latest appliances, and then the living room and the bedroom sets. But unless you're going to buy a spatula, everything comes in a box. Everything has to be assembled. Uh, if the instruction manual is written in English and Swedish, it's probably a good bet you better take a look at this. Now, unless you're like Dan or Rod, and you guys are great at this, you may not need the instructions, but people like me, I need to follow those instructions. Uh, I've looked sometimes at the tools required, just the tools, the list of tools. (laughs) Pliers, hammer, screwdriver, forge, Life, life insurance. You know, it just, <laughs> what am I making here? So, if, uh, it's, if you think it's hard to assemble a chair, try assembling one of these. One of these. Do I have it up there? No. One of these. Assemble one of these. I would like try to assemble, put together a teenager. And it's a girl, cootie alert. Where's the instruction manual for that? For her. And in fact, the most challenging task of all is the person who stares back at you every day. What are you going to make of him? Who's he supposed to be? What is he supposed to be like? Is there any meaning or purpose for which you exist? How about the task of making this person the man of God he was intended to be? Now, if Sven thought it important to include instructions for assembling a chair, don't you think our Creator would have been wise enough to include instructions for building this person. And in fact, he has. Next slide, please. (laughs) Here's the instruction manual. God's Word is our instruction manual. 2 Timothy 3, 
16 and 17. And this is, again, familiar ground for many of us. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Completeness. See, all that's necessary for you to become the person God wants you to be has been included in His Word, the instruction manual. It's all there. For example, in Proverbs, um, the topics that are included in this book are far-ranging. I assign my students this this task. Uh, When I teach them Proverbs, they have to read through every chapter, one chapter at a time, and they have to fill out this little survey. Uh, They have to explain in one paragraph the main points of the chapter, uh, and then they have to list the topics that are found in this chapter, and I give a whole list of them. And they look for these topics. In Proverbs, here are some of the things that are covered. What wisdom is, importance and blessing of wisdom, personification of wisdom, how to obtain wisdom, characteristics of a fool, characteristics of a wise man, parent-teen relationships, husband-wife relationships, friends, dating, sexual purity, kindness, thoughtfulness, arguing, understanding, respecting others, borrowing, thrift, debts, loaning, seeking wealth, dishonest wealth, giving, thought life, vows and making agreements, work and laziness, greed, scoffing, murder and hurt, punishment, foolish speech, wise speech, lying, gossip, making decisions and seeking advice, God's ways, life and death, love, honesty, humility and pride, gladness and joy, patience, persistence, drinking, gluttonous eating, oh my. It's all in one book, and there's 66 books in the Bible. See, God made us to live a certain way, the most abundant life possible, the most blessed life, and he knows how you can do that. And he imparts that to us. If you want, you can go to uh, the internet and look up a list of topics for study in Proverbs, and you can find them all over the place. So uh, you can take those topics and match them to the references in Proverbs where you would find uh, God speaking to you about each of those issues. So if you have some need in your life and some uh, relationship or some task that you are a little bit weak on, to hear some references for it. This is just one book out of many. Right next door to it is an instruction manual on praise and worship. It's called the Book of Psalms. And then it goes on. The whole Bible begins with creation, and it ends with the dawn of the eternal day. It covers all of the doctrines necessary for you to understand who God is, who we are, Jesus Christ, salvation, the Holy Spirit, the church, angelology, future things. It's all in there. It's like ragu. It's in there. So if you want to throw the instruction manual away, what kind of life are you going to end up with? Jesus underscored the importance of God's word. In Matthew uh, chapter 4, Jesus was led out in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And I like this this description of it. Matthew 4, verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. You think? If I go five hours without eating, I'm an unhappy camper. If I were to, for some reason on this planet, fast for 40 days and 40 nights, don't come near me. 
I will kill, I will eat. So after 40 days and 40 nights, the devil tempted him. And he said, if you are the son of God, well, the wording is really, since you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Can you imagine Jesus going, he's right. I'm the son of God. I have the power to to create if I want. Here I have been starving for 40 days and I could have commanded a stone to be bread. Oy vey. The temptation is the most important thing in your life right now is that loaf of bread. You harness all the powers of God to get what you need which is most important of all right now because you're starving and you need bread. That's more important than anything else. And Jesus' response was, you're wrong. It's not the most important thing. He said, man shall not live by bread alone. You see, bread is necessary, but it's not sufficient. But by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, today we know how to make a living, we just don't know how to live. So in a sense, we're existing. We're feeding and nurturing physical sustenance so that we can exist. But God's Word gives us the reason for why we exist. The essence for existing. The purpose for existing. And the instruction manual is there to help us realize that purpose in life. Jesus knew all about that, and he wasn't going to depart from that. He wasn't going to settle for second best. So if you decide to throw that instruction manual away, you're, 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 you're settling for second best. Throwing away this purpose for living for a loaf of bread. So, the wise commit themselves to godly living. The wise read and follow instructions for godly living. And now we press on to a new passage in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. In this passage, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And he will make straight your paths. So what is the third step in decision making? It is this. The wise depend upon God's direction for godly living. It's a matter of trust. I am celebrating my first anniversary of having both my knees replaced. In fact, it was last week that... uh, that anniversary took place. I had this knee replaced on June 5th, and this one July 17th, last summer. And I, I, was, I spent five months in physical therapy. And I never forget my first day. It was over at Orthopedics Northwest. I met Lindsay, the therapist. And I came in with my walker, real slow, and she said, Jim, I'm Lindsay. Let's go over to the recumbent bike. If you'll sit down, and we're going to spend 10 minutes, and we're going to try and move your, your, your legs, your knee a little bit. And if you can't make a full revolution, that's okay. Just go back and forth and back and forth for 10 minutes. We're going to put some heat in there, warm it up and loosen it up, and then we're going to do some stretches. And so after 10 minutes, I got back on my walker. She says, come on over here to this apparatus. I call the monkey bars. She says, now put the, the walker to the side and hold the bar. And she says, now, this is what I want you to do. 
Put all your weight on your good knee, on your good leg, and raise your weak knee up as high as you can and put it down and do that 20 times. Oh, my knee is swollen. My leg is turning black and blue, and it's still stiff no matter what the recumbent bike was supposed to do. I'm groggy from the meds, and it wasn't pretty. I went, <laughs> 20 times. And she says, now do that to the side 20 times. Now do it in back 20 times. Okay. And front 20 times. Then she says this, now I want you to march in place. That's all I want you to do. Hold the bar and march. Just do this. I thought, okay. So I, I raised my weak leg on my good leg and did that. And then I, and I stopped. And I realized, wait a minute. You want me to put all my weight on my weak knee and raise my good knee? I just had surgery. This was a week ago. Look at my leg. If I put all the weight on my knee, my knee's going to buckle, the rivets are going to pop out onto the floor, and the sky's going to fall. I actually looked like I was having a seizure. I'm like... And she just waited. And I'm struggling. And finally, I looked at her and I said, I'm sorry, I can't do that. At that precise moment, I ceased to trust her. I no longer depended on her training, on her knowledge, on her expertise. I leaned on my own understanding of what knees can do, what support they can bear, what would be the outcome. I caved into fear. I didn't trust her. I trusted me. And she said, that's okay. We'll do something else. I went through the, the motions. I finished out that training exercise. And all the while, I was mad at myself. You didn't trust her. And I went home. Jan helped me out of the car and into the house. First thing I did, I knew I was going to do it. I went into the kitchen, put the walker to the side, put my hands on the the island, and I said, okay, Lindsay said, put your weight on your good, good leg and raise up your weak leg. Do it. I did it. I didn't do it 20 times. She said, put your leg to the side. I'll do that. She said, to the back, not to the front, and then she said, march. Jim Herring, who do you trust? You or Lindsay? Who's got the more insight? Is it you or her? And I'm going like this. I raised my weak knee on my good one, and then I was just starting to have a seizure again. And then, Lynn, who is Lindsay? Who is she? Does she care about you? Is she dependable? Can you trust her? Raise that leg! And I'm going, Ugh! and the rivets didn't fall out. My leg didn't fall off. I went, I was marching. <sighs> Lindsay was right. I could trust her. I could depend on her. <sighs> so the next time we went in, I couldn't wait to apologize to her. I said, Lindsay, I'm so sorry. I didn't trust you. She says, it's okay. It's okay. Can we work through this? Yeah. I said, absolutely. I depend on it. See, trust is depending on God, not for the strong leg, but for the weak leg. And we all have strengths, 
but we all have weaknesses. It's especially in the weak areas of our lives that you have to trust God that he's good. He loves you. He cares about you. He wants the best for you. Now start marching. And don't turn away from God when his instructions disagree with your fear. Because as that song says, fear, he is a liar. So we need to depend on God. And with what? It says, trust in the Lord with all your what? With all your heart. America's Funniest Videos, you've seen that where a person who has one foot on the boat, another on the dock, and the boat starts slipping away from the dock, and what happens? They do the splits, and then they get wet. This is not half-hearted, but wholehearted, a complete investment of oneself in the knowledge and the instruction and the understanding that God is going to impart into your life. Wholehearted. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. Own Him. Recognize Him, that He's involved in your life everywhere you go, not on Sunday morning alone when you go to church, but on Monday morning when you go to work. There are principles in play there is a purpose for your day and an end result in your life. But you've got to trust God for that. Now, let me give you four quick reasons why you need to trust God. Four of them. They're not on the screen, so you're going to have to listen up. The first reason why you need to trust God is because we often make the mistake of substituting sincerity for truth. Officer! sincerely believe the gun wasn't loaded when I pulled the trigger. Well, it doesn't matter how sincere you were. If there's a round in the chamber and you pull the trigger, the end result will be deadly. See, sincerity is not a causal agent. It does not determine a right outcome. And Solomon knew that. In Proverbs 16, 25, is on the screen, Proverbs 16, 25. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There are millions of people that I sincerely believe that the way that they're taking is going to lead to God, or to the ultimate ground of being, or nirvana, or enlightenment, or something out there. They believe with all their heart, they're passionate about that, that they're doing the right thing. And Solomon says, the end can be death for you. Why? Because sincerity does not determine the end. God does. Sincerity is an effect, not a cause. When we put our trust in God to direct us, to guide us, it results in a sincere conviction that we are on the right path. But sincerity doesn't create the path. So we need to depend upon God. Someone who can determine the end from the beginning. Who's involved in making A connect with B. And who does that? Who can do that? Isaiah spoke about such a person. Remember the former things of old. God speaking through Isaiah in chapter 46 and verse 9. Remember the former things of old for I am God and there is no other I am God there is no none like me declaring the end from
from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. Wouldn't it be better to put your trust not in the sincerity of your belief, but in the nature of God himself, who is working with you to accomplish a goal, one person who knows and declares the end from the beginning, who accomplishes all of his purposes. Wouldn't it be better to trust in that than anything else? Another reason why you need to put your trust in in God is because we're so limited in what we think and know. Again, Isaiah speaks about our limitations. In Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Wouldn't it be great to know that there's someone on your side who knows everything? Who knows where my path is going to go and how to get there? You see, our Father knows best because He knows all. We don't. We're limited in our thinking. So we need to put our trust in in the Lord because we mistake sincerity for truth. We're limited in our thinking. And we can actually be misled by false doctrine. Last Sunday, Tyler Critchlow talked about the forbidden woman and all representing all the alluring the allurements of the world, and we can be enticed to be led away. But not only is there a forbidden woman out there, there are ravenous, fierce, ferocious wolves. Paul warned the believers at Ephesus about their coming. He said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. You see, there are people who don't have your best interest at heart. They'll use you, manipulate God's word, twist it all up, lead you apart, and destroy your faith. These are wolves, not shepherds. They don't feed, they eat the flock. And because there are people like that in this world who have those bad interests who are harmful to you, you need to trust in someone who cares for you. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ and His Father. Now, the last one is going to be a little bit more personal. You need to trust God because you can't trust you. You're really not as trustworthy as you really believe you are. Now, you might be offended at that. You might say, oh, Mr. Herring, you don't know me. I have never broken a promise. I have always kept my word. You can count on me. I've got your back. I will not fail. I will always be the person. I will be genuine. I will be there for you. If you ever want to trust Paul, fall into my arms. You know who that sounds like? It sounds like Peter. Right before Jesus was crucified. And when Jesus said, you know, the, the, the shepherd's going to be struck down and the sheep are going to be scattered. And of course, Peter objected to that. They're not me. You can trust me, Jesus. 
I've got it all together. You can count on me. And we all know the rest of the story. So you're not as trustworthy as you really believe you are. So you have to trust on someone who is. In fact, we don't even really realize what's going on in our own hearts. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And wait, it gets even worse. Without Jesus Christ in your life, without being saved, we talk about the doctrine of salvation, where we have sinned and rebelled against God, and a holy God loves us and is just to provide a means for us to be saved, to be forgiven, and to be brought back into fellowship with Himself. But if you don't respond to that, if you have not done that, then you are in, let's say, a natural state as all people are when they are born in this world. And what is that like? In your natural state, as the natural man, you are hostile to God. You can't please God. If God gave you an instruction manual on how to live, you will rebel against it. At best, you will just respond with passive indifference. Romans 8. Uh, verse 9, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, that's bad news, but here's the good news. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. You see, when you come to Christ and receive Him as your Lord and Savior, you're not just forgiven, you are given a new life the Holy Spirit begins to indwell, take up His residence in you, so that you can be empowered to counteract those sinful tendencies that used to rule in your lives, and you can receive that instruction manual and to begin to submit to it, to read it, to follow it, to live it out. So God not only gives you the instruction manual, He gives you the means by which to live by it. So you need to trust God for all these things. Now, Here's the blueprint laid out for us. Just as there's a blueprint for building a Millennium Falcon, an engine, a house, um, a fighter plane, there's a blueprint for building your life. You can't say at the end of the day, I don't think there was a plan. I don't think there was a design. There weren't any blueprints. No one told me about it. And you would have no excuse. God does have a plan. He has a desire. Here are the instructions. God has a blueprint. He would take anyone's life and build a man or woman of God out of that if you would be willing to do that. These are the steps in making wise decisions every day. Every single day, you need to commit yourself to godly living. Every day, you need to read and follow the instructions for godly living. And every day, you need to trust God. You need to depend on Him to direct you. So what are we going to do with the rest of the day? Let's pray.